Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. Welcome to this evening's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Gerald Harris. I am chair of the club's technology and society member-led forum and a member of its board of governors. And I will be your host for this evening's program. The Commonwealth Club is America's longest standing public forum. And especially at this time in our history, we are proud to maintain our focus on informing the public and our members on key local, national, and world developments. The focus of the Technology and Society Member-Led Forum is to expose members and attendees to current and emerging developments in science and technology, and in the process, generate thinking and ideas about the use of and commercialization of technology in creating a better world for all. This is where people come to discuss real ideas and the place to be in the know. We want to welcome and encourage the participation in all of our programs. More information can be found on our website at www.commonwealthclub.org. <clears throat> I also want to uh, welcome the people who are observing this program through our uh, various digital uh, channels, as well as you here in the audience. Thank you for coming and revisiting the club. On behalf of the club, I would also like to thank the folks at Wonderfest for their support of today's program in particular, and also a thank you to the Good Lit, Good Lit program supported by the wonderful folks at the Bernard Osher Foundation. Please silence your phones and other noise-making uh, devices at this time. And now to our speaker, Serafina Elbadri Nance. Uh, Serafina is a astrophysicist, analog astronaut, author, <laughs> of Starstruck, a memoir of astrophysics and finding light in the dark. Please join me in welcoming Serafina. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for coming. And um, as I mentioned to you, this is about your book, so I want you to talk about it in the way that you, you want to. But maybe a good place to start with is to just let us, you know, sort of, you know, what's your background, the way you explained it, and why you decided to write this wonderful book. I enjoyed reading it. Thank you. I just want to say thank you for uh, to everyone for being here. Uh, it is really surreal, and I feel very, very grateful. Um, yeah, so I fell in love with the stars when I was five years old. Um, I used to stargaze every night with my dad, and even at that age, I think I always knew that I wanted to do something with the stars, whether it was becoming an astronomer or becoming an astronaut, something with space. And, you know, that journey um, to grad school has been, you know, really beautiful in a lot of ways. I think I've learned some really incredible things about the way that our, our universe works. And I think it's also been really difficult. I think you know, I wasn't inherently good at math and science. Um, I always felt out of place as a woman, um, as an Egyptian American, and as someone who, you know, wasn't the best at, in the class at those at those subjects. And I think I reached a point in grad school where 
you know, I was tired of feeling so out of place. And I started sharing my story a little bit more online and, you know, being more transparent about what it's like to actually pursue your dreams when there are obstacles in your way. And I think that's the honest, you know, journey and story of what it means to, you know, pursue the stars. And I wanted to share the heartbreak and the joy of it um, because it's taken both to get here. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my hope is that readers will find a sense of belonging in a way that I think I wished that I'd had when I was embarking on this journey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let me just say, you know, as I work my way through the book, you may say you're you're not going to get math, whatever, but I thought there was a lot of good science in there. <laughs> Thank <laughs> right? you. Right? You know, I learned a lot from reading it. And so, you, you know, and you talk about not only good science in the book, but then you weave in your personal stories of moving through. Why did you start to write it that way? And I thought it was very effective. Can you, you say something about that? Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So for those who don't know, the format of the book is a little bit unique in that there's science astronomy that bookends each chapter of my life. And so the book essentially traces the evolution of the universe in parallel with my personal evolution. And what I what I tried to do was find parallels in each astronomy subject matter mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as there was in my life. And I think, you know, there's that's a literary choice, a literary device, but there was also something I think profound about it in that scientists are human and it's important that we share the humanness behind the science as well as the science itself. And then you get to the whole idea of we are star stuff. We literally, you know, are the calcium in our bones, the oxygen in our blood. We are the stuff of the universe. And so I thought that was an interesting parallel as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, in fact, one of my fun parts of your book uh, is you have a way, and I guess you, you also see you're, you're a science communicator, and you do a lot of that, and there was a part in the book where you tried to explain to people uh, how many stars there are in the universe <laughs> related to how many grains of sand there uh-huh. are on Earth. Can you run us through that so people get a sense oh, of that? Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I enjoy reading that part. <laughs> My advisors in the audience, you can be like, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think... What I what I try to do in the science sections is is, you know, choose analogies that make it, you know, very accessible. And, you know, what's interesting about astronomy is that it's out there. You can't touch it. You can't, you know, taste it or smell it. It's it's inaccessible by virtue of what it is. And so we have to draw parallels to what we can understand here on earth and so i made this analogy of the number of stars of the universe and the grains of of sand on earth and the fact that there are more stars in the universe that there are than there are grains of sand here and that there's something in there about the vastness of the universe and trying to understand just how enormous our cosmos is um and for me that's something that i think draws me back to astronomy every day. I like thinking about how small we are and how big it is out there. I really felt small after being <laughs> Hopefully that's a good thing. Like, okay, I, you know, my life doesn't matter because I'm just this little bitty thing here. It doesn't really matter. 
Um, yeah, so, uh, but let me just go into this a little bit more because I think there's so much good science. You also talk about the fact that uh, of the stuff in this room, it, it's only like 5%, matter is only 5%. There's other stuff out there like dark matter. Like, can you tell people, kind of walk us through that? Because I thought this, Absolutely. Was, this is amazing stuff for people to understand. <laughs> yeah. So I learned this when I was in 11th grade, which the fact that I'm about to tell you, and it, I mean, it hooked me. It was like, I, I was so entranced by this notion that we only know four to 5% of everything in the universe, everything else, dark energy and dark matter. We don't know what it is. We see its effects. We know it's there, but it's this sort of unseeable in many ways, because of that unknowable stuff. And for a curious mind, for somebody who loves exploring, that's exciting. That's ripe with possibility. Oh, I, I mean, completely. I mean, I remember um, I was coming, I think I was going through a BART station once, <laughs> and there was a sign about dark energy, right? And they wanted people to come to Berkeley to talk about it. And I oh. thought, like, Wow, this is really getting down to the public now about yeah. know, how important this is. So I thought, you know, the things you're doing in this book is just sort of bring these points out. So, so let me ask you a question on, on this whole science thing, which is, as you educate people more about science, what is it that you hope might change in them or make the world better? I mean, you know, I'm, we, we talk about climate change and all these kinds of things, but when people understand science better, does it? Can it make them a better person or, or what? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. There are two parts to my answer. The first is I think astronomy is the most magical thing in the universe. And I want to share that magic with everybody who I can talk to and 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 reach. Um, but more importantly, I think that science literacy is extraordinarily important to being a citizen of the world we all experience these existential crises like climate change, the epidemic of gun violence, mental health crises, um, COVID-19. People can't breathe in New York. Today, exactly. Right? That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 And mm -hmm. I think it's what I have seen in doing science communication is that often people who maybe don't have the science literacy that, you know, I would like treat science as a belief and it's a belief system and then they can opt in or out. And, you know, as someone with a background in science, that's incredibly frustrating. And I think that we as scientists need, there's, there's a, a, an importance and a need to communicate what we learn to the public because we can't expect that, people with non-science backgrounds wouldn't necessarily understand, you know, what we're talking about. So I think personally that it's the job of every scientist to communicate in an accessible fashion what we learn with the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, just even at the club, we've had programs on gene editing. Mm -hmm. We've had programs on AI. Uh, we've had programs, I told you, on the uh, James Webb telescope, right? So we're, we're totally in agreement with you in terms of people just need to, you know, to learn more. And I think it is important for a diverse group of people to communicate. Absolutely. Know, know, know these stories. So um, one thing I, I'm going to jump down on one of my questions because my, my girlfriend really liked this question. So I'm <laughs> going to tell you. Uh, 
what is your message to, to young women? She has two granddaughters. One of them is a little math whiz, by the way. Love that. And uh, she, my question is, is it okay to be a girly girl and a scientist and an engineer? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Does this work? Yeah. You know, I think they're, we all grew up with stereotypes of what a scientist looks like. Um, I certainly, that's part of the reason why I felt like I didn't belong is because I don't, I don't present the same way that this image of a scientist is in my mind. And what I hope that young women take away from my book or just in general is that they can be their full whole selves in science, whether that's being a girly girl, whether that's, you know, I don't know, doing math all day. And, and you know, it, it doesn't mm -hmm. really matter. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. if, if there's a passion there, mm -hmm. I hope that they can they can continue to foster that and 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 fuel that. And I hope that they find a community and mentors that encourage that because that's really where I think, I mean, that's where I've, I've been able to succeed and overcome obstacles is because I've had incredible mentors, mm -hmm. including my advisor in the audience and, right. and, you know, my dad and, and people who allow me to show up as my full self. Right. In fact, I want you to talk about the experience I think you had with your sixth grade teacher, Mr. Mike and I think, yeah. Yep. Tell everybody that story. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. Think about that, yeah. So um, Mike in was my 11th grade astronomy teacher, and he is this, you know, I thought he was like 100 years old at the time, but he's <laughs> this, you know, you know, he looks like a scientist. He's this wizened man. He is in an observatory. He has all of these books around, and you know, you walk into the observatory and you feel like you're in another world. I mean, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And he taught his class so differently than all of the math and science classes that I had taken to date because he approached science as being curious about the world and about the universe. And rather than seeking answers, rather, rather, whether it's, you know, memorizing an answer or, you know, understanding all the steps that get you to something. It was much more about posing the questions, getting people interested, fostering that curiosity and letting everyone know that they could explore. And he brought up stories of him, you know, walking the Grand Canyon and and I don't know, doing things I didn't know were science. I was mm -hmm, like, oh, mm -hmm. you go out and look at the stars and then you talk about it? Cool. Um, and I was, I, I was enraptured. I mean, it was, it was, um, it was an entry point that mm -hmm. I hadn't had before. I think mm -hmm. before that, I was so wrapped up in getting the right answer. Yes. And what I learned in that class and, you know, throughout my career so far is that it's just important to ask the right questions and then, you know, of course, gather evidence, analyze it, understand where it's pointing you to. But science isn't necessarily about, you know, being right all the time. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, there's a quote in the book, and I may not have this exactly right, where uh, I thought one of your sort of um, breakthrough points was this notion of um let me put it this way. Don't think you're not smart because you have a question. Don't let having questions mm -hmm. push you back as if you're not ready, you're not good enough, right? Can, can you talk about that? Because I thought the importance of 
of, of asking questions with courage and with openness was, was really powerful in, in the book. Thank you. Yeah, I think everybody has questions and scientists just spend their time trying to answer them every day, all hours of the day. Um, maybe not all hours, but yeah. <laughs> close enough. Um, you know, I, I grew up with my parents saying, we don't say I don't know to questions. We'll say, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. And I think that's essentially what scientists do. We have a lot of questions and then we try to figure out creative ways to solve them. And that's exciting. That's, that's an endeavor that I think everybody can relate to. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I think this notion that um, a really good question can be really valuable. Yeah, I think that's part of, again, that's part of being a scientist is figuring out what questions are the right questions. Not that there's a right, but th mm -hmm, that maybe mm -hmm. take you more towards that answer. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, others. about, I think a, maybe three or four years ago, uh, I, I read Scientific American, right? Mm -hmm. And they had a, an anniversary issue. And in that issue, uh, there was a part of the book that a scientist suggested that people just go and mess up all their experiments, just, just make a mess of it. And then try to work your way back. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's he what said, my oh, God, you're going to learn, you know, so much from that, from making a mistake. And I thought, <laughs> wow, you know, I wonder if you just, you know, tell more people that. You yeah. Know, get hung up on a, you know, m mistake and all of a sudden, you know, you're frozen. Yeah, right? you right. freeze. Exactly. I think one of the things that I had to come to terms with maybe as a scientist or, you know, as someone interested in science is, I am wrong so much. I get the answer wrong all the time. <laughs> and it's a very humbling experience. But then when you get it right, it's like, oh, I grew through this. I learned. I, I evolved. The answer is suddenly it makes sense for all of these reasons. Mm -hmm. And that's exciting. That's like a light bulb moment. Yeah. Yeah. And those mistakes along the way are part of the process. You You iterate until you get it. And I think... I certainly have gotten dissuaded during that. I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. defeating in many ways, especially when your code just like doesn't run and you're like, oh my God, like what's going on? Um, but then it works and yeah. Yeah. you get to go from there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, some years ago, uh, I was on the uh, National Advisory Board of the National Society of Black Engineers, one of the largest uh, such organizations in the country. And... Uh, one of the problems we were running into was, was um, professors discouraging young people from pursuing engineering in the first year. Um, in fact, when my son <coughs> was in school at Cal Poly Pomona, a professor said, uh, look to your right and look to your left, only one of you is going to make it. Horrible. Right. So what, you have the podium here. So what would you say to the people who do such things as that? Oh, I have a lot of words. <laughs> um, I've experienced that in my life. Um, my, I went to science camp when I was in fifth grade, which was really cool. And um, I, was, I was a very cool kid. But, um, you know, when I was there, I met an astronomer for the first time. And I was so excited because even at that age, I knew that that was something I was really curious about and I wanted mm -hmm. to explore. And I ran up to him and I said, I want to be an astronomer when I grow up. 
And he said, no, you don't. This isn't for you. To a, you know, 10-year-old. And I think that's an example of these very explicit messages that people in power give to younger people, especially underrepresented people. And um, it's incredibly defeating. And when you have those those messages compound over time along with these sort of more insidious messages like, you know, only the girls or only the boys get called up in math class to solve problems. Um, you start to believe in them. I mean, I did. And it's, it's interesting. Almost every interview that I've had so far about this book Whenever it's a woman interviewing me, almost every single one has said, I've had that experience happen to me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a mathematician or a physicist or, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. enter your answer here. And they change their path because of it. So I think for those who say those things... I don't, I don't know if they realize just how harmful those statements are. I mean, like the one with your son who said, only one of you will be here at the end of the year. Not only is that defeating, but that can create a core belief in that person and make them question their worth, where they belong. You, you can break someone in that. And so I think, you know, educators and mentors and and people with privilege and power have a responsibility to, as I said earlier, foster excitement, foster passion, you know, nurture young minds mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. succeed in whatever they want to succeed in. And, and those young minds get to tell you what they're curious about, but it's not up to those, you know, in power to dictate what people can and cannot do. Sure, sure, sure. And and I forgot the name of the movie that came out about the um, African-American women who were doing math at, mm-hmm. at NASA. And, and I think what people learn from that film and if any read of history, that it's a fiction that men do everything. Yeah. <laughs> discover everything. Know everything. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the lies that we tell young young people. I mean, I certainly was told this when I was asked... Um, you know, who I look up to when I was younger, I could only think of, you know, Albert Einstein, Carl Sagan, who I, who I love, but, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, men who right. were researchers and, and pioneers in physics and astronomy, when really there are incredible women who have also made extraordinary discoveries and they just aren't publicized in the same ways. Mae Jameson was the first. Exactly. Person. Yeah. And yeah. mm-hmm. that's that representation is so important to let people know that they belong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If they can't see themselves, it's it's incredibly hard to imagine that you could ever be there. Right, right. And don't you think it's a waste of talent? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's when I talk about you know why aren't there you know more women, more people of color in STEM. Um, I think it's, you know, it's not that people aren't interested. It's that they are actively dissuaded or they're pushed out. 
And it is a massive waste of talent. And we need those minds. We need that unique perspective and everybody's, you know, different ways of thinking and understanding and viewing the world and experiences to be able to solve complex problems. You know, when you think about COVID-19 and the oh, way yeah. that it affects different populations. Well, there was a woman who did some of the original research on the breakthrough of the uh, approach to that kind of medicine, who was yep. the lowest paid, you know, PhD sitting in a lab somewhere. And it's like, oh, you know, that stuff you were working on, we need that now. You right. Know, it's kind of like, oh. Right. And then you end up having, you, you create, I mean, I'm speaking now in terms of like the medical field, but there are, you know, treatments that are created that completely don't address certain populations that aren't available for certain populations sure. because they are only used on men in the right. research groups. Right. And so it's, it's, it's harmful to everyone involved. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you. Um, so let me go a, one more step a little deeper because you, you do it in a book and I'm going to let you talk about it the way you want to talk about it, which is um, uh, managing one's own emotional <laughs> crisis as you work through it. Everybody in the room, let me tell you, you've had them. Okay? <laughs> You're not excluded. Okay. Um, but you do a really good job of sort of, you know, working your way through and being really open and honest about some things that were challenging to you. But why don't you... I'll let you speak to that in the way that you want to. Yeah. Um, so for those who haven't read the book, I suffer from like pretty severe uh, general anxiety disorder, PTSD. Um, and I have with anxiety since I was a kid. And I think one of the things that I, I, I say in the book is that I fell in love with the night sky in part because I loved feeling small and that was really beneficial to my anxiety because suddenly I didn't have to worry about all of the things that were in my mind because it doesn't matter. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's there's something really beautiful in that. Mm -hmm. I think when you surrender to this notion that the universe is very big and we are, you know, I think I say an exquisite blip in the cosmos. And You're just passing through, honey. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We're just passing through. And, you know. I said this earlier this week that that makes every, you know, person that you interact with, every relationship that you have infinitely more precious. And there's something incredibly comforting in that. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of the way that I talk about anxiety with science, um, specifically my journey in physics, is that I felt and often do still feel stupid a lot of the time. It's a very, you know, as, it, as we just talked about, you get things wrong all the time and that's hard um and so a lot of my you know what I write about is how I deal with that how I how I contextualize and and make meaning out of the hard things to make the special things and the the happy things even more precious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah, let me remind you in the audience if you have questions, so please you know write them on the card and we'll you can bring them up and I'll I'll read them and review those as, as well if you have any questions. I, I, I hate to tell you I don't have pen for everyone, so you have to borrow um, a pen. Yeah, um, yeah. In fact, I, I I think there's a way in which um, and I'll ask you to just think about this is that. Um, really clear thinking uh, where you get to a point of discovery, mm -hmm. right? Uh, one needs to be open and clear. Yes. Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. I, 
I have a passage in the book where I talk about my my journey in in hating physics to loving physics and it was a no one tell my advisor um but it was a whole I mean it was a it was an evolution that I didn't know was going to happen mm-hmm. and what I ended up I think realizing is I reach this meditative state when I am solving physics problems mm. and when I lose myself in the research you know when I think about what it really is that I'm coding or what what I'm thinking about and what the what the research question is and that's liberating I mean that's very very freeing um and those are the best moments I mean those are the moments that make it all worth it sure, sure. and so I think that for me, in many ways, is physics and astronomy, but it it, it can be anything. Um, I think when you find that avenue of being able to really surrender and and be open, as you said, to whatever is happening, you are in a clear um, state, and it's mm-hmm. it's sort of I mean, it's therapeutic in many ways. Mm-hmm. I, I I met a person who said that he can see clearer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think in my best moments as a physicist, that's exactly what happens. You see all of the things that brought you to this point. You you see the way that things are woven together to create a picture that you I think see in all, in in all clarity. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's every scientist's goal. I yeah. I think when you want to see all of the different ways that the evidence sort of points to you know, this this one big idea or this one realization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to um, the uh, size of the universe. And you, you made some comments earlier about we're made from stardust, right? So when we had um, Dr. Fracknoy here and he was going through the uh, James Webb, uh, he pointed out that one of the things they discovered is that the, the theories about how soon galaxies form mm. from the Big Bang had to be reconfigured because somewhere deep out there, there seemed to be one that was appeared about 300 million years after the Big Bang and that wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah, have I you heard this story. I have, okay. yeah. I think Can you tell is... people a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So the James Webb Space Telescope, for those who don't know, is a state-of-the-art telescope that was launched last July, I think. And its job is to sort of see, you know, the farthest things away in our universe. And um, people who study the early universe, so the farther away you look, the further back in time in the universe you look, because light takes time to travel to us. So we are looking at things as they looked, you know, 13 billion years ago, for example. Um, and so this, this study that you're, that you're referencing, they found that galaxies existed, or they thought they found that galaxies existed far earlier than our models would have predicted. And as far as I know, that I think is is maybe not the case, and they are uh, astronomers are are actively investigating it. But I think that potentially that first conclusion that a galaxy formed 300 million years after the Big Bang is potentially not true. Right, right, right. Well, the reason I brought that up is I wanted you to 
give people your idea of, you know, as you're studying this stuff, what do you see that the, some of the big issues are that you would think it'd be good for us to be thinking about, you know, sort of, you know, as you're studying stuff, what, 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 what stuff's out there that you think, wow, we should check this out? Well, I think the easy one is, you know, is there life out there, right? I think everybody at some point in their life has been interested yeah, big in that waste question. Of space, there wasn't any, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I think um, most astronomers, if you talk to them, they'll probably say there is, but we just haven't found it yet. Um, but, you know, my the question that I am most interested in is my research question. Um, and that's what I'm writing my uh, dissertation on. So for some background, the universe is expanding. We've known that since the 30s, um, late 20s, early 30s. But what we learned in the late 80s is that the universe isn't just expanding, it's accelerating its expansion. And the stuff that is propelling that expansion is called dark energy. Oh, my God. That is frightening, the very thought of it. It is. I mean, now I feel really, really small. Man. I know. It's, it's, once you start thinking about oh, these things, no. you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, we're just flying along in space. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is that we don't know exactly how fast the universe is expanding mm. around us. Mm. And so... My job is to use exploding stars to try to solve that question, mm -hmm. or at least chip away <laughs> and mm -hmm. get closer to answering that mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. And what might really blow your mind mm -hmm. is that when you look at the early universe, so if we apply our standard models of physics to the earliest parts of the universe, that model predicts a different rate of expansion than what we measure locally. Ooh. And so the question is, is there some different physics going on that we don't have in our standard, standard model of physics mm -hmm. to help explain this? Is there something wrong with our methods? Is there some sort of systematic uncertainty that is just mm -hmm. showing up mm -hmm. and we don't know what it is yet? Wow. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can come back and tell us the answer. <laughs> I would happily come back and talk all about yeah. it. In fact, someone told me that, they, that it, tell me if this is true now, that, that if it really is expanding that fast, at some point, uh, the stars that we're seeing now are not going to be visible. Yeah. It, it's going to get. Yeah, we'll be plunged into eternal darkness. Oh. <laughs> but that's not going to happen for we'll be dead by then <laughs> we'll be long gone and yeah, yeah no yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah the universe is going to as far as we know our current models say that it'll continue to expand mm -hmm. forever and continue to accelerate that expansion mm. and so everything will grow further and further apart we won't see stars there will be black holes that sort of evaporate and we'll be left with nothingness Mm. Wow. But that makes this current moment infinitely more precious. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this, this, we're going back to this, why it's important for people to understand about science, right? Because one thing that uh, we learned from, from the James Webb discussion is that, well, there's only one Earth in this area. Mm -hmm. We only have one. Yes, I think that is... And it, all these other planets that are around here, we don't think we can live on 
any of those. Yeah. I think there's this notion that, oh, we'll just we'll just go to another planet. You know, we'll just we'll just escape Star Trek and boom. Right. right? Yeah. How cool would that be? Um, But I think the reality is probably not. It's our closest planet that might work besides the moon is because the moon's not a planet is Mars. And there was an article that I think said it perfectly in the headline. Mars is a hellhole. I mean, <laughs> nobody wants to live on Mars. It's 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 excruciating. You know, we would live in tunnels underground. It, we wouldn't be able to go to the surface. I mean, it's 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 not a pleasant way of life. And if you think about, you know, we were talking earlier about the time scales, the distance scales that we're that we're facing when we talk about astronomy. I mean, we're talking light years. So that's the yeah. distance that light travels in a year. Oh yeah. And then you start adding those up and it's like we're not going to get anywhere anytime soon. No. And that's be a vegetable inside of Exactly. <laughs> that's right. Get there. Yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah. So I think this is especially important when we face global challenges like climate change. And when we talk about why protecting life on Earth matters, we can't be cavalier about the way that we treat our planet. And I think, you know, Gen Z especially is, is really rising to that challenge in a beautiful way. And I hope that people... I mean, it's an existential threat and it's a very real threat and we're not going to have another Earth to just hop to. There's no right. planet B, I guess right. is the right. Right. saying. Is there a question from the audience? Because I haven't seen one. Okay. Thank you very much. Let me just grab this. Let me have a look at this. Okay. Um, he says, I'm a psychologist who works with clients in astrology uh, charts to give them meaning to their lives. Do you want to say anything about astrology? <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, man, what do I want to say? I think that I don't know a lot about astrology, to be candid. I think that it plays an incredibly important cultural role in, in many different cultures. Mm -hmm. And... I'm not going to come in here and say, you know, it's it's wrong because I, I, I to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think, you know, what I can say is that I think it's a very human desire to make meaning out of the universe around us, including the stars. And humans have been doing that for a very long time. And, you know... If that's if that brings comfort or some sense of of security, then who am I to say that it, it's yeah. not right? No, no, I agree. I agree. Uh, one other thing I want you to explain to people because this was explained to us uh, a while ago, but I think you have a way of explaining it as well, um, which is um, everything out there is moving mm -hmm. at really high rates of speed, mm -hmm. and so. As soon as you step off of this planet, it's not where you left it. Yeah, that's actually. And you might have a, really a hard time getting me. back. Uh huh. Can you explain to people why that's true? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm going to explain this in the best way, but I'll try. Um, you know, we are on the Earth. The Earth is rotating and is also orbiting the Sun, and the Sun is orbiting 
the center of our galaxy. And there are many other suns out there that are all moving as well. And so you, you start to realize that everything is sort of spinning on its axis and, and rotating and moving through space. And yeah, I mean, when you step off the planet, the planet's going to be in a different position than when you, than when you get back. Um, if you can get back. If you can get back, right, exactly. So yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought for sure. Yeah, because I, I I think there's a, a misnomer that people think that it's right there, and mm -hmm. so you can just like fly to it and then turn around and come back, and that's <laughs> that's true, is it? No, especially because space time itself is moving, and so uh, not only are the objects in space moving, but space itself is moving, and then you start to think, what is anything real? <laughs> um, but you know. I think the image of a static universe is historical. I mean, you know, when we used to think that the earth was the center of our solar system and we used to think that, you know, I don't know, the sun didn't move or, you know, whatever it is, there are these pictures that we paint to understand what's around us because that's what, that's the information that we have. And that's how we can contextualize and understand these things. But in reality, I think I say this, it's actually like the first couple pages of the book. We don't know the full picture a lot of the time. And so perception, we have to acknowledge that what we see is what we perceive. Mm -hmm. And what is the objective reality is something that science helps uncover. Yes, 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 yes. So since you raised astrology, I'm going to throw one oh, more boy. of the sort of curveballs that we get <laughs> occasionally which is the great meteor strike that will, uh, I guess it wiped out the dinosaurs. Oh, uh-huh. Uh, but it, it, <laughs> is, is there some likelihood that we, we could have another uh, such event? Uh, what do you think? I think, I mean, I am not an expert on this, but uh -huh. I think that, yeah, that's a concern. But it's also like, I, I, as far as I know, governmental agencies like NASA, are, that's part of what they do is to try to figure out how to, you know, move those away from the earth. <laughs> um, I don't know how effective it is. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know how effective it is, but well, I guess we'll the, see. the thing, the thing I heard about this, and you, you can see, to, I think this is true. Uh, that uh, one of the problems is that um, uh, sometimes the uh, underside of the earth, right, like where the South Pole all down in uh -huh. there, that we're not actually looking down there. Wait, what do you mean? That whatever our telescopes are, you know, scanning, you know, where a meteor may come from, uh -huh. right? That we're not looking 360 degrees. That there's some parts of the space of, oh, of outer space I that see. we're actually not observing. Uh huh. And something could come from there. Well, the Earth because we're not looking. So. And it can come from anywhere, right? Right. No, you're right. But, I mean, telescopes can see a portion of the sky. Yeah. But there are telescopes all over the world. And so you right. can start to build out a full picture of the sky. But so. currently, as I understand it, we're there's some gaps in. Well, and hopefully, uh, it doesn't that doesn't we're, come we're, from there. We're <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking all those other PhD students that got come behind. Yeah, you I'll the, give uh, a, get an those guys over there. Project, Young lady, exactly. you need to get and start looking <laughs> on the dark side over there and see if there's anything coming. You know, <laughs> that'd be helpful. Okay. All right. Anything else that that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with this this, this audience, just from 
the, the wonderful, there's so many good things in the book, and I don't want to, you know, be a spoil sport here, but there's other things that you think that you want to share with people, please, you know, please do, because I've asked you a bunch of tough You've questions. You've asked great questions. Um, I don't, I don't think I have anything. Maybe I'll just, can I just read a quick small sure. passage? Sure, please do. Please is do. that, yeah, is that allowed? It. Okay. Um, do we want science or do we want... It's up to you. It's your ticket. All right. Well, yeah. since my advisor is here, I'm going to talk about supernova because that's what oh, I study. Wonderful. Oh, lovely. lovely. Um, yeah. So this is the beginning of chapter seven. It's called Exploding Stars. In a never-ending sea of black... Beacons of starlight tether us to the cosmos, but it is when stars cataclysmically explode that the brightest lights of our universe get lit. While stars about the size of the sun fizzle out into white dwarfs at the ends of their lives, fading into darkness as empty shells of themselves, more massive stars undergo a different evolution, one that ends with their explosion. We are the stuff of stars. The oxygen we breathe, the nitrogen in our DNA, the iron in our red blood cells, the calcium in our bones, and the carbon in our cells were once formed in the cores of stars. Without supernova, there would be no you, no me, no dancing, no breathing, no words on this page, no leaves blowing in the wind, no joy and no heartbreak, no thoughts and no love. There would be no light. Instead, because these stars die, the universe is alive. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking Serafina Albadi. Man, wonderful program. Thank you for Thank being here. Thank you so much. Here. Enjoy the book. Oh, wait a minute. Oh. Someone, the YouTuber people have come in. Oh, okay. boy. <laughs> All right. We're not even Okay. So, um, oh. Oh, you got one too? Okay, there we go. We're not done. Okay. <laughs> okay. There you go. They're, they're pulling you back in. Okay. Um, oh, so this question is, if you look, and I, I kind of talked on this about what big questions is astronomy, astronomy facing right now? You talked about dark energy. We talked about, uh, in fact, there's an experiment, I guess, where they, these lasers are crossing and there's some wave that comes through the universe. So what are these other sort of challenging uh, questions that you say that sitting in the middle of, a, of uh, astronomy right now? Yeah, I think what you were just referencing, gravitational mm -hmm. waves. Yes. So that. when black holes collide or when a neutron star in a black hole collides, it creates this sort of cataclysmic thing that sends out gravitational waves, which are ripples in space time. And we can detect them here on Earth. So that's really cool and exciting and also not what I study, but other very smart people look mm -hmm, into it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Some of them women, by the way. Exactly. Yes. yes. Um, I think, I mean, the questions that I, that brought me to astronomy um, are honestly part of the reason why I think astronomy is relatable to everyone. You know, there are these questions that face humankind and, and really, I think, make us consider the human condition, which is, are we alone? Mm -hmm. How did the universe get here? Mm -hmm. What is the fate of the universe? You know, these big, big questions, and yes, some of them are philosophical, but some of them are very scientific. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, 
some of the brightest minds are tasked with answering these questions. Right, 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 right. Um, this is an interesting question. I only know the answer to this, but uh, you, you probably can work this one through. Which I is, don't know. No, no, no. <laughs> See. Uh, with, with the universe expanding, uh, are, the, are the bodies right around us, the moon and Mars, are they getting closer to us or further away? Yeah. So what's interesting and important to remember about the universe expanding is that happens on the the grandest scales of the universe mm -hmm. so galaxy clusters so clusters of galaxies which are filled with you know hundreds of thousands of stars that's the stuff between which space-time is expanding uh -huh. Uh -huh. but gravity is paramount and the most important thing on the local scales, so the smallest ah, scales, okay. like the Earth and the right. Moon and the Sun. Okay, because actually the Moon is actually getting closer to us by about something like a quarter of an inch every year or so, right? Yeah, I think yeah. I actually do think that's right. Yeah, yeah. I was I entered at, at an observatory where let me tell you one of the weirdest things I've ever witnessed is um, out of this observatory on the hill this giant green laser was just pointing at the moon Yes, and everyone around was like, are there aliens? Like what's going on? And it was measuring the distance of the moon by measuring how long the light takes to hit the moon and back. Mm -hmm. It was able mm -hmm. to measure the distance. They're tracking that over time to see mm -hmm. how that distance is changing. Right. 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 And I guess uh, the, according to some people is that, the moon was formed in the early formation of the Earth, right? When some of the material that didn't form here just kind of spun off. And uh, and in fact, the stuff that's flying around the, the bands in mm -hmm. Saturn are the same thing. It's this leftover planetary stuff, right? Exactly, yeah. So I think, as far as I understand, one of the, one of the theories about how the moon was formed is basically this object collided with the Earth. And and then broke got off a piece, huh? Exactly, and then yeah, got gravitationally bound. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. We're all moving. Yeah, uh, <laughs> including that. Yeah, yeah, great. We don't want to be around for anything like that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Last question here. Uh, the person says, "Well, you're talking about sort of um, dark matter expanding the universe in dark, dark energy. energy. Dark energy. Yeah. So, is there anything else that might be?" Affecting it, or we just don't know what's the, what's the thought. Yeah, about? I mean, that's that's essentially that type of question is exactly what my research question and what you know that field of research is interested in exploring is you know, we think dark energy is real, but you know, are we not understanding or seeing something that's in the standard model of physics mm -hmm. that could potentially explain what we're seeing? Mm -hmm. I think the evidence, as far as I know, is overwhelmingly pointing to dark energy being real. It explains a lot of things about the composition of the universe, um, how the universe is evolving. But that said, I mean, scientists have been wrong a lot of the time. And, yeah. you know, we think we know one thing and then and then all of a sudden we get some new data and we learn something different. So mm. I would say, you know, there are potentially other explanations but right now with our current data and our current analysis dark energy is 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 the answer well here's the learning new things thank yeah. you again all right two rounds of applause wow. this concludes this evening's program in the commonwealth club thank you all for coming you've been listening to the commonwealth club of california hear thousands of our podcasts on apple podcasts google play and stitcher 
If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.